chapter 4 of the book of Esther for connection because last time we went to verse 11 I'll begin in verse 9 Esther chapter 4 and verse 9 <clears throat> Esther 4 verse 9 and Hathak Hathak is the king's eunuch who attends Esther Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to put to death, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my uh, young women will also fast with you. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The Apostle Paul reminds us very provocatively, I think, in Romans chapter 14 and verse 8, that whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Whether you live or whether you die, you are the Lord's. And when the Apostle Paul was standing on Mars Hill debating the Athenian philosophers in Acts chapter 17, he said to them, For in him... That's in God, we have our being. We live and we move. Everything we do, everything we say, everything down to the very act of breathing, the Apostle Paul puts in the hand of God. Your sitting here tonight is in the hand of God. Your breathing, your singing, your thinking is in the hand of God. The doctrine of providence, God's providence, covers all of those things. So these verses, like whether we live or die, we are the Lord's, they teach us two things. Number one, that we belong to the Lord. Whether you live or die, we are the Lord's, right? We belong to the Lord, which is a great comforting truth. And the second thing to come out of that is that you only exist, and you only breathe, and you only live because of the Lord. So we live unto the Lord, but we live because of the Lord. And that's the truth of providence. We live unto God, but we only live unto God because of God. This is, this is providence. Providence is not a static doctrine. Uh, it's not a fate-filled doctrine. Many people trying to understand providence just boil it and come all the way down to, well, it's a fate thing. What will be, will be. That's not providence at all, right? 
In fact, the one beautiful thing about providence, it accounts for all of the secondary causes that will happen, that God has ordained, and it accounts for all your accountability and all your responsibility in such a way that whatever you do, God is never the author of sin and can never be the author of sin. And so God, in His remarkable character, in His remarkable way of dealing with these things, does not permit Himself or allow Himself to be denigrated, to become the one who is to be responsible for our sins. No, the responsibility for our sin is ours alone. And yet there's absolute freedom by the decree of God, by the providence of God, for you to live your life in the light of the truth that God has revealed. God is not coercing you. God is not forcing anyone. God has not made us to be robots or anything like that. No, God has given us freedom and choice. The responsibility of that is ours. The sin, if we commit sin, is ours, never God's. Yet it all, good and evil, is within the framework of the sovereignty of God. He has, as the hymn writer said there, ordained our days and our ways. All of my life and what happens within that life, all ordained by God Himself. So providence is not fate filled or fate accomplished in any form whatsoever. Instead, it is the intimate interaction of a sovereign God over your life and in your life, personally, individually. We often uh, fall back on that great first question of the Shorter Catechism, that we exist, don't we, for the glory of God, the enjoyment of God. That's the chief end of man, to glorify God. But let me ask you this question. What does it mean to glorify God? Or to put it another way, how is God glorified? And how does God view himself in glory? Because he is in glory all the time, right? Surely glory is the majestic, matchless perfections of the character and nature of God all combined together to make God who he is, to show him up to shine Him forth, to declare Him boldly and confidently, so that for me to glorify God is to ascribe, as the psalmist says, glory to Him, to say about God what God says about Himself, to declare that this God is infinitely wise and good and holy and just and filled with love, and everything He does for our good, for those who love God. So God reveals himself to the heights. We who are in the depths, in the valleys below, we catch a glimpse above the mountains occasionally when the clouds blow aside of the glorious vista that is there when the clouds go. That's the glory of God. That's how we should live. That's what we should aim for, to glorify God in all that he is. The Bible eliminates such things as accidents, doesn't it? There's no accidents with God. It eliminates such things as chance or luck. It's quite interesting how easily good luck falls from our lips. Good luck to you. <laughs> that's kind of like taking everything out of the providence of God. I know we don't mean it like that, but that is what luck conveys and what fortune conveys or fate or it's written in the stars. And therefore it's your life. And how often you read in the newspaper, at least you used to read in the newspaper, the horoscope, right? Which is nothing but a horror story, right? 
It's a horror story of, of your life because it never changes. I mean, you could go back a few years and see the same stuff written, right? No, our God is not like that. Right? Nothing is left to chance. Nothing is left to accident. Nothing is left to fate. God is intimately engaged. He's not like a watchmaker, by the way, who makes the watch and then the watch runs. God doesn't take his hands off his universe and say, well, good luck to you. I've done everything, now just get on with the business of function and running by yourself. No, God has established first cause, second cause, and every cause unto himself so that it does run for his glory according to his dictates, his decree for himself and himself alone. All of these things, by the way, that we can't explain. Like, why should somebody win, I don't know, $750 million in the Florida lotto? Why should somebody win that? Well, God, right? Well, how do you know it's God? Because all the dice, all the roll of a die are in the hands of God. That's how I know. So I don't really worry who wins it. Well, God somehow blessed you or maybe not blessed you because there's a lot of trouble that comes with that, right? Responsibility. But all events are saturated within, find themselves within this purpose and knowledge of God, within God's actual executing of what he has determined because he knows it perfectly. He doesn't learn it. He knows it. And it's hard for us to describe or comprehend the knowledge of God like that. My knowledge is a learned knowledge, right? I don't just have it. I learn it. I learn, I learn, I learn. And, and then I forget and forget and forget. And I have to relearn and relearn. God is not like that at all. He knows everything. He doesn't learn anything. He's perfect in his knowledge. And, and he's perfect in fulfilling his purposes for my life and for your life. God is never thwarted. I like that. I like that because I make plans and they get thwarted, you know, all the time. And then I jump up and down, get upset. Not God. God has a purpose. God has a plan. And it can never be thwarted by whatever you do, whatever you say, whatever you think. And it can never be overcome and it can never be overthrown. So that's why the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 45, right, that great verse, I form light. And I create darkness, I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. We usually like, well, I like light, and I like well-being. But the darkness part and the calamity part, well, how can God make that? What kind of God would make that? No, a good God who sovereignly controls all of those things and everybody who suffers within them or finds themselves within them. In other words, all delights and all disasters are ultimately ascribed to God and belong to God who orchestrates all things because He is wise and holy and good. Even death, your death, my death, is in the hands of this God. This God. In Esther chapter 4, tragedy has struck the Jews, hasn't it? I mean, the word has come down from Haman and from the, the law courts that every single Jew is to be taken out, to be killed. And at this point, this, this determination by Haman is now put into writing. It's an edict, it's a commandment, it's law, it's out there. And every Jew uh, knows about this. And so he's plotting, isn't he? He's plotting the downfall of this man, Mordecai. Because Mordecai just kind of ignores him. 
He rides by on his horse with his nice purple or blue cloak flowing behind him with a crown on his head, a nice beautiful white horse, whatever it might be. And Mordecai just carries on writing. And everybody else bows down, right? Because they fear for their lives. But not Mordecai. He disdains Haman. Who is Haman? Who is this Agagite? And of course, there's a lot of antipathy there, as we've seen. So he ignores him. And that, when Haman comes to understand that he's filled with rage, right? He determines that he will not take out Haman, I mean Mordecai alone. He will take out all of Mordecai's people. In one one day, on one day, he will de destroy them all. So he intends to destroy the people of Mordecai, all the Jews. Now remember that Mordecai, in chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, had told the king's servants that he himself was a Jew. So now they know Mordecai is a Jew, and they told Haman that Mordecai was a Jew. That's how Haman knew, well, let me take out all the Jews, and thereby I take out Mordecai. Now, here's the interesting thing. Haman's decree has taken 11 months, right, to develop in chapter 3, verse 12. And in chapter 3, verse 13, he has scheduled the destruction of the Jews like a doctor's visit, okay, on the 13th day of the 12th month. He has determined that. So he's, that's the day, 11 months in the future. On the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews perish. And he seems to be in no rush, by the way, right? Because it took him another 12 months uh, to cast the purr first before he determined what day it would be. So he spends 12 months casting the lots, casting the lots, because he wants to be sure about what particular day. And then once he's decided this is the day, then he puts it into plan and action. It takes another 11 months from that time to when he actually is going to happen, 13th day of the 12th month. You know, Mordecai... What's his reaction? Chapter 4, verse 1, he goes into deep mourning, right? Tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and you know, whatever it is, and he cries out with a loud and a bitter cry there by the king's court or the king's gate. In fact, all the Jews in every single province, chapter 4, verse 3, they go into great mourning, fasting, weeping, lamenting, sackcloth and ashes. Why do they do those things? Because those are the symbols of death and the symbols of grief, extreme grief. So they're in mourning, they're grieving. In fact, even chapter 3, verse 15, the, the capital city, Susa, is thrown into total confusion. What's going on? What does this destruction mean? What is this decree? So chapter 4 takes us then through the process of how Esther learns about Haman's plan. How she comes to know what Haman intends. So it begins, doesn't it, by finding out Mordecai. Why are you mourning? Why are you tearing your clothes? What is this? She doesn't know. So she finds out. She sends Hathak. Remember the king's eunuch. Go and find out. Talk to Mordecai. I want to know. Mordecai tells her. So she tries to get him to change his clothes. Right? She sends clothes. Dress yourself. What is this all about? Chapter 4, verse 4. And Hathak, of course, he reports back as we began our reading here in verse 9 to Esther. From Mordecai. And in that report, Mordecai literally commands Esther to go to Ahasuerus and to plead on behalf of her people. You go to Xerxes and you talk to him and you plead with him that this does not happen to us. 
And now Esther, you would think, wow, she's a remarkable woman. She surely would know how serious this is, and therefore she'll just say, yep, I'm off to see Xerxes, because I know him. I love him, he loves me, things are great. But that's not what Esther does, right? She provides an excuse. She provides an excuse in verse 10 and 11, right? She literally says to him, I, I can't just go to the king. I can't just show up. You know, nobody does that. I mean, there's protocol. There's prohibitions in place. There's the golden scepter rule. The golden scepter must be held out and then you live. No golden scepter, you die. I'm sure if any of us tried to climb over the fence at Buckingham Palace and see the queen up front close, there'd, there'd be some repercussion. Because there are protocols. Or there are prohibitions. That's exactly what happens to Xerxes and Ahasuerus. There's, he's put protocols in place. And Esther says, look, the king must call me. I can't just go to him. I can't just show up. I have to be called. And by the way, Mordecai, I haven't even seen the king for 30 days. He hasn't called me to come. For 30 days, for a month, nothing. So I'm, I'm not just going to pick up my skirts and trundle along to see Xerxes. No, she makes an excuse. But you know, Mordecai, he just brushes those objections aside, doesn't he? I mean, you look at verses 12 through 14, he just, he just puts them to one side. So these are the verses that we want to consider, right? First of all, let's consider Esther's position. Who is she? She's the queen. I mean, there's no higher place for a woman in Persia than the queen, right? Verse 12 and 13. But being the queen, according to Mordecai, does not guarantee her safety at all. Not even the royal palace can provide protection for Esther. No, that's not going to save her. In fact, Mordecai is simply pointing out, I think, that Esther might be perceived as a threat to Xerxes. Because of Xerxes, he might think to himself, well, Esther has all along never told me that she was a Jew. What else has she not told me? Perhaps she's some undercover agent for the Jews. And I don't know about it. Some mole who's now in the king's palace and even worse, in the king's bedroom. Perhaps Xerxes might have thought that if it came out that Esther was a Jew. She, he found out some way or another. No, Mordecai says, you're not safe. You will never be safe unless this is resolved. You won't be safe, even though you're the queen. Secondly, her silence, because, you know, she's made this excuse about can't go to Xerxes, can't see the king, because I might die if I go to him. So her silence, he says, <laughs> is going to do nothing and provide no help at all. And Mordecai, thirdly, he points out to her that if she doesn't help, then somebody else is going to help. Somebody else will help. And Esther should realize that if that were to happen, she would still perish. See, that's the point. You can't get away, Esther. Even if you keep quiet, you will perish. You will still die. He says, you and your father's house will perish. If you keep silent... You and your father's house will perish. So don't think by, by keeping quiet and being silent that you're going to escape the doom of all the Jews. No, you're not going to escape. And then, 
Mordecai unleashes what is perhaps one of the most provocative theological statements in all of the Bible. Right? Mick talks about truth bombs. Right? Truth bombs. The first time I've ever heard that phrase. A truth bomb. Jesus dropped a truth bomb. Right? Well, I'm going to drop a theological bomb. Right? On you. Because this is what we have right here in these verses. Notice the end of verse 14. <clears throat> well, we'll read verse 14. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And here it is. And who knows? Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You know, Mordecai strikes me as quite a theologian. He's got some other, other understanding of the whole thing that Esther just doesn't seem to grasp, or at least on the surface. She seems oblivious to these kinds of things. So what he is going to unleash is this theological truth that you and I need to learn. Very, very important that we need to learn this. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows? whether you are not in whatever place you find yourself in that place for whatever God has determined. Who knows? There are two bombshell passages, right? The first is this verse 14, but the second is obviously verse 16. If I perish, I perish. And generally, if I perish, I perish is the, is the, the statement about providence in the whole book of Esther. If I perish, I perish. So, notice Mordecai's opening words in verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Now Mordecai, he's expressing either two things. I mean, one of two things here. He's either expressing hope. I hope relief and deliverance will arise from another place. Or he's expressing faith. I know. Relief and deliverance will rise from another place. Hope seems kind of weak to me, kind of insignificant, I hope, relief and deliverance. That's not what he seems to be saying at all. He seems to be saying, if you, Esther, keep silent, then relief and deliverance will arise from another place. That's confidence. That's hope. That's, that's faith. That's, that's, it's not going to happen with you. If it doesn't happen with you, then it's going to happen somewhere else, through someone else. So, what does Mordecai mean when he says this, these words, from another place? Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Now, you notice this is a prepositional phrase, right? From. From another place. Mordecai does not say, perhaps, relief and deliverance will arise from somewhere else. He seems to say it will rise, it will come, and just as confidently he says, from another place. So there will be relief and deliverance, and it's coming from another place, if you keep silent, Esther. Now this phrase, from another place, is often viewed as an indirect reference to God himself. A circumlocution, as we call it. Now, Jewish tradition, interestingly enough, places some value on the phrase place. 
Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this, for relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And Jewish tradition looks at that phrase place and sees within that word place a cipher, a cipher for the name of God, the place in which creation resides, God himself. Now you know, what, what's the standout feature about the book of Esther? You never read about God. God is not even mentioned anywhere. But yet, God is everywhere in the book of Esther. You have to be blind not to see it, right? Even though he appears completely hidden, completely silent, in the background, undisturbed as it were, just there, hovering, God. And yet here, Mordecai, in verse 14, is expressing some certainty, some confidence, that help and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Now many commentators see that as an allusion to the intervention of God. That the other place, another place, is God himself. Should human agency fail, then God will take matters into his own hand. That's a dangerous thought, by the way. Should human agency fail, then God will step in. That's not how God works. God works through human agency. Let's understand this, right? So if Esther fails, the idea goes, then God won't fail. But that's not the case. That's not how we should understand providence at all. It's important to realize that though human failing exists, it exists by the decree of God. Even human failing is within the decree of God. Can't bypass that at all. However, if Mordecai is not thinking about God, right, he certainly conveys confidence. And he certainly conveys some sort of assurance that help will arise from another place, that it will come from somewhere else. You know, it's interesting what God does with this idea of a place. Because he often associates, God does in the scripture, place with himself. So the, just think about this. There's Moses. He's 80 years of age. He's on the backside of a desert. And he's up on a mountain. And he's wandering about looking after his father-in-law's sheep. Right? He's been doing that for 40 years. It's a very quiet life. The great general of Egypt. The great orator of Egypt. He's, he's retired. He's on the backside of the desert. And he's walked this trail hundreds of times. But this time, the bush bursts into flames. Perhaps no strange occurrence because of the dryness and the heat, but the startling thing to Moses is, well, why is the bush not being consumed? How come the bush is burning and burning and burning and burning and burning and it's not consumed? So he stops. And then a voice comes to him, Moses, Moses, take the sandals off your feet because the place on which you stand is holy ground. What made it holy? Because I'm sure Moses has passed that way before. How come now it's all of a sudden a holy place? Because God was there. Right? Because God was there. Moses says in Exodus chapter 15, he says about God, he says, You, God, will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. God's presence in the place 
Now, if I were to ask you tonight, do you believe God's presence is here? Yeah, He's here. This is His place, not the building, but His people. Where His people are, there is God. Doesn't Jesus say that? Where two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst of them. That's my place with my people. That's what God say, right? Now, there, there are some problems here and difficulties here with these kinds of things because it should not be seen as a choice between either Esther delivering the Jews or God delivering the Jews. That's not the choice. When Mordecai says, if you don't, if you keep silent, if you don't say anything, then some, someone else is going to help. God's going to intervene. Okay? We shouldn't see it as a choice between either Esther's going to deliver them or God's going to deliver them. That's not the question. It is a question of what human agency, or through whom, or how God will actually deliver. Because God is going to deliver. I don't know how he's going to deliver, Mordecai is saying. But I believe there will be deliverance from somewhere else. Mordecai is certainly stating, isn't he, that the Jews themselves will be delivered. But you, Esther, you will not. Now here's the point. If you keep silent, you perish. If you keep silent, you perish. Yes, your life may be in jeopardy if you go to Ahasuerus without being invited. That's true. Because you've said that, Esther. That's the law. You can't just go to Xerxes. I'm telling you to go to him. And you've told me you can't just go to him. Well, your life may be in jeopardy. It's true if you go there uninvited. But I'll tell you one thing, Esther. Your doom is certain if you do not go to him. If you do not go, your doom is certain. It will not be in your favor. If you do not, he says, you and your father's house will perish. Not may perish, not might perish, but will perish. So he's convinced. If you don't do something, Esther, if you don't act, it's over for you. Now, some see this, by the way, as a threat by Mordecai, or on Mordecai's part. In other words, if you fail, Esther, I might reveal that you're a Jew. But that would be reading into the text, I think, right? Too much to read that, I think, into the text. Or, God will act against you if you don't act on behalf of his people. Again, I feel that's too strong a thought to think about in this passage. Now, those ideas may or may not be. That's true. But what is clear is Mordecai's last statement. Who knows whether you have come, not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now notice how Mordecai moves from the place to Esther's actual position in the kingdom. And then he moves to Esther's purpose for such a time as this. This very moment. This is why you became queen. Not for any other time, but for this moment, the singular purpose. Now, you know, every believer, I think you and me, we can surely see that there's something that's happening here that's above Esther, <coughs> that's above God. Something is extraordinary in Mordecai's mind. Because he puts it this way, who knows whether, who knows whether. Now, just... Let me ask the question, who knows? God knows. Right? In fact, God
God's the only one who knows. God's the only one who knows. Nobody else knows. Only God knows, right? But God's knowledge, God's knowing, is not simply mere knowledge, right? No, God's knowledge is always God's purpose and intention. I often think of Joseph, Genesis, right? What shocking things those brothers did to him. Even to want to kill him. They could see him in a distance, let's kill this dreamer. They hated him. Can't really conceive of that in a family, right? But it's a family that's, uh, that's full of dysfunction, okay? Too many wives, too many children, not all related together, and they're in, they hate each other, and they hate Joseph. And yet, through all the hatred of the brothers, you see the purpose of God, don't you? Why should Joseph suffer such agonies and such hatred from his brothers? It's the purpose of God. Because God's purpose is not singular just to this simple moment in Joseph's life. God's purpose is beyond Joseph, what he can think. Now Joseph, you know, he's had, he's had these dreams, right? So he's, he's got this, there's something in Joseph's mind about, my brothers are going to bow down to me. The Bible even says that Jacob kept that stuff in his mind. Because he knew about experience with God. And so Joseph's life is for I don't know how many years, you know, maybe 13 years or maybe a little bit more that he's in the pit and he's in Egypt and he's not, where he sh he's not in a very nice place. He's in the prison and until a singular day happens, Pharaoh has a dream. Isn't that remarkable? Where'd the dream come from? God. God sent the dream, right? And, you know, it never ceases to amaze me how Pharaoh, you know, what a sharp guy that Pharaoh must have been. Because he looks at this Joseph and he said, is there anybody else like this one in all my kingdom? No. Right, you're the man. From the pit to the top. God. How do you explain that? God, right? It's only God who does that. Whatever God knows, he knows all things. He knows exactly all things and he knows that they will occur because he has determined they will occur in perfect harmony for his accomplishing his purposes. Because he's ordained it. He's ordained our ways, he's ordained our days, he's ordained everything. You know, the book of Esther, Esther's life, or Joseph's life, or Daniel's life, lived in foreign lands, right, is wrapped up in the sovereign purposes and decree of God. And God always executes his eternal decree, whatever he has determined, by his works of providence, the interaction of human lives woven together, like your life and my life, woven together, which encompasses everything that exists and encompasses all that happens. I can show you this from the Bible, from the greatest place in the New Testament where it happens. And I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. So Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 11, okay, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Ephesians 1, 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Now look at the words. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
Notice the active providence of God. The text says, who works. Who works. It's not just like, okay, watchmaker stuff, run and it'll happen. No, who works. Okay? And notice the execution of the decree of God. It's called the counsel of his will, right? The counsel. So what does God work? He works his counsel. And notice his choice of his will. It's God who chooses. That takes you back full circle to having predestined us according to that. Right? Now you often read in Ephesians 1 about to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, the riches of his glory. Right? Remember earlier I talked about the glory. Why did God do all that? Why does he predestine us according to the counsel of his own will? The one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. For his glory. Right? That's the only reason God does it. And you will notice God's eternal purpose. Go back to verse 10. Or even verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Look at verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time. Here's the purpose. To unite all things in him, things in heaven. And guess what? Things on earth. Don't miss that. To unite all things in Christ on earth. Not just in heaven, where you would expect that to happen. But on earth. All things. Everything. Everything. Every single thing. Every aspect of our lives, right? So God is the source of all things. God is the sustainer of all things. God is the end of all things. That's Romans eleven thirty six, 36, right? This is why we are said to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8 verse 30. 37. Providence, by the way, is the doctrine that tests whether your knowledge of God is practical. Do you really believe this in the nitty-gritty of your life? In the daily affairs of life? We confess, I think, I think I can say that, we confess that God controls everything, that God controls all things, and that in His controlling, He does it perfectly, He does it lovingly, He does it sovereignly. So the Bible teaches us, for example, that God controls all the weather. God controls every plant. God controls all the animals. God controls harvests and famines. And God controls all nations. God controls all presidents. All kings, all queens. God controls all dictators. God controls every single human life. It is God who opens the womb, and it is God who shuts the womb. And it is God who forms every child within the womb for His glory. Every single child, every single thing, right? Now here's, here's where it just comes down to me. God controls our abilities and our disabilities. You see, most of us are willing to say or ascribe glory to God. Thank you for my abilities. But my disabilities, that's a different story. Oh, not with God. Because God is the same God over your abilities which He has given you and over your disabilities which He has given you. Sovereignly. And when Christians bemoan their disabilities, 
they moan against God, frankly. It's the facts. The Lord said to Moses, who was making excuses about going back to Egypt, you remember, on that very mountain, Exodus chapter 4, you could sense God's frustration. Not that God gets frustrated, but you can sense it with Moses. Just keeps making excuses about why he's not the man to lead Israel. God says to him, who made man's mouth? Who made man's mouth? Who makes man deaf and dumb? Who makes man to see or to be blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Shut your mouth, Moses. Right? That's what he's telling him. Because it's me who determines those things, not you, Moses. You don't have a say in whether you, you go back to Egypt or not, because that's my calling for you. I'm sorry it's such a burden for you, Moses. But you really are the top dog. There's nobody else, right? You remember what Hannah prayed in Samuel, 1 Samuel 2? She said, the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. Luther said about this stuff, he says, you know, this is the most important stuff of our faith because it completely puts down your pride, it completely puts down your arrogance and any blasphemy that might come out of your mouth against God, and it puts down fame and it puts down false trust. It eliminates those things. What it does do is it exalts God alone. The stuff, this doctrine. B.B. Warfield says, your application of the providence of God over your life shows your confidence, by the way, in one singular thing, in what God has said. You see, because what God has said, the question is, do you believe what God has said? For you. For Esther. For Mordecai. Even what God has said for Haman. And what God has determined for Xerxes. God rules over all of our hearts. God rules over all of our minds. God rules over all sin and all sins. Yet He's not the author of sin. You are. And I am. And He's worked that and determined that and He keeps Himself aloof from it and yet He's totally involved in it. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Do you remember how Rebecca and Jacob, just like her, they have their schemes to get the blessing and all of that. But God would have exalted Jacob anyway. He didn't need their schemes. It was God's purpose to exalt Jacob anyway over Esau. So who knows, Esther, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I know who knows. God knows. And when God knows, He always acts, because that's how it works. His knowledge and His purpose and His acting are all one and together. Who knows whether you, whether you are in your place or your job for some purpose unknown to you at this stage? Who knows? I know who knows. God, right? Who knows whether you have come to physical weakness or physical disease? I know who knows. God. And I know that God has determined such things. You see, it's God and God alone who works whatever circumstance, whatever situation you find yourself facing and in. <coughs> <coughs> Do 
You know, everything around you and in you may be falling to pieces. It's true. But let me tell you this, not one piece will fall to the ground apart from the hand of God taking it down. Right? God takes things away from us in a kindness, in a loving hand. For who knows what purpose? Who knows? God deals with us in, in these mysterious ways. They are mysterious to us, but they're not mysterious to God. They're like, they're like the bright sun shining clear. You see, this is how you must see verse 14. And Esther, <coughs> and Esther, in response, she seeks to prepare herself, right? Look what she says, verse 15 and 16. She's going to prepare herself for whatever the outcome will be. And she's going to prepare herself by fasting. Now, will you notice, generally speaking in the Bible, fasting is accompanied by prayer, right? Going to God and telling God and talking to God about the situation and then fasting. There's no praying here. She just says, I'm going to fast for three days and three nights, and uh, my women are going to fast, and you get everybody, all the Jews in Susa, to fast. So Mordecai's got to go around and talk to all the Jewish homes and say, look, this is what Esther says we must do. We must fast for three days and three nights, and she's going to do the same, because a collective crisis requires, it would appear, this collective fasting. Because you see, this is not all about Esther, is it? This is about every Jew. This book is not just about Esther. It's about every single Jewish life. And God's providence is over all those lives, just as God's providence tonight is over your life, your situation. By the way, your life doesn't involve just you. It involves others as well. It's the sovereign weaving of God's grand design to mix your life with others, with other Christians and with non-Christians. To mix your life with an unbelieving spouse. To mix your life perhaps with rebellious children. To mix your life with a wonderful spouse and wonderful children. God. God. Doing something. Working something. We must say that God is deeply and always actively involved in everything that surrounds us and is about us. If that's true, what does God want of me? He wants faith. Believe me that I'm in charge. Believe that I will take care of all things perfectly. He wants dependence. He wants our commitment to Him. In the face of, of seeming destruction, Esther and her people, right? God wants dependence. God wants faith. Notice Esther's resolve. She says, then I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I, don't, I think that phrase, if I perish, I perish, is not, shouldn't be seen as unbelief, but it's a resolution, isn't it, to submit herself to this course, to do this, whatever the outcome, because that's what she says. Whatever happens, if I perish, I perish, but I will go to the king. This is like Jacob sending Benjamin, right, with the brothers back to Egypt. <laughs> After Jacob said, you're not taking Benjamin, you're not taking Benjamin. Finally, he knows he has no choice. And what does he say? He says, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. But God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Which he did. Which he did. 
You see, what's happening here is the pinnacle of this doctrine of providence, the mountaintop confession of the believer's life. It's not what will be, will be, right? But it's what God wills will always be. That's it. What God wills will always be. And my understanding of all the details is not necessary. Because frankly, I tried to figure it out and gave up. Okay? Because we can't. By the way, if you could figure it out, where would be the need for faith? If you knew it all, you don't need faith. Because now you know. You got it figured out. But I know you haven't got it figured out and I haven't got it figured out. God says, trust me, I've got it figured out. I know it all. This is Esther's defining moment, surely. If I perish, I perish. And here's the thing about providence, daily providence, because it is daily. Right now it's happening, and tonight and tomorrow, it's all the time. Daily, daily providence is always defining. It's always achieving some end, some goal. If we believe and trust in the Lord, then we shall find that the Lord is working sovereignly in our own lives. Whether you know, We should seek to understand that, seek to know that. Because all things work together for good to those who love God. So you can't get away from that. All things, not some, but all things work together for good for those who love God. Do you love God? Then all things work together for your good. Nothing to moan about. Nothing to groan about. Because all things work together for good if you love God. Oh, how difficult providence can be. Right? <laughs> to believe that. To live like that. You know the remarkable thing about Jesus? Is that Jesus always delighted to do the Father's will. It was a pleasure to Him. It was a delight to Him. And what was that will? To save His people from their sins. Imagine if Jesus got distracted. Imagine if Jesus thought, uh, I'm not, not sure about this will of yours, Father. No, I'm definitely not sure about these people. Okay? But that's not what our Lord said or thought at all. He delighted in His people. They had been given to Him by the Father. And He had said He was coming to save them, whatever it took. What did it take? The Father's will. I always do those things that please my Father. That's why He came. So when Jesus commits Himself to the purposes of God, the Father, he does something else. He commits himself to his people. To his people. So the commitment of Jesus to the Father is, I will do that for them. And his commitment to us is, I will do it for you. I'll save you. I'll deliver you. Uh, oh, how Jesus delights in his people. This is the remarkable thing about being a Christian. Jesus loves me. Jesus delights in His people. We sometimes live so miserably, don't we? We of the Reformed persuasion, we who believe in these great decrees and doctrines, boy, sometimes we live miserable lives. Really. We moan and groan about all kinds of stuff. And I'm ashamed of it, for myself. Because it happens. It shouldn't happen. If we are so confident in the purposes of God, why would we ever moan and groan against God? Oh, Jesus delights in His people. He loves His people. In fact, His people are the fruit of His labors. 
He has won them. We belong to him. I know that if I perish, and I know if you perish, you're safe. You're safe. If I perish, not I perish. If I perish, I'm safe. Right? <coughs> Isn't that what this doctrine is all about? I cannot be lost because I'm in the hands of Christ. I cannot perish for Jesus holds me. Nothing, nothing can pluck me out of the Father's hand. Nothing. Not one single thing. Not a Haman. Not a Xerxes. Nothing. No law of man. No decree of man. No determination of man can ever pluck me from the Father's hand. God is sovereign. My Father is sovereign. My Savior is sovereign. The Holy Spirit is sovereign. This is God in our lives. For our good, always, and always for His glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what deep truths we've tried to scratch the surface of. And we pray, Lord, that each one of us would determine that we would walk in this light, in this way. That we would commit ourselves to your will and your word. Help us to know your will and know your word. Help us to walk in your ways. Thank you, Father, for this glorious day, the Lord's day, that we've come as your people to worship. What a privilege. What a joy. Now, Father, we go about our business in this week, which lies before us, but we commit it to you. We ask that you would go with us. And that in every circumstance, in every situation, in every trial, you would help us. Help us to immediately cast our hearts and minds upon you, to rest in you. And thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you will be with us. You are always with us. You have given us your Spirit. He dwells within. Help us to yield, we pray, and to walk in these ways that we find in your Word. So we thank you for each other. Thank you that our lives weave together by your sovereign decree and by your providence. Thank you that all things work together for our good because we love you. Help us to, love, to enjoy that and to live in the light of it. Now bless us as we part. Thank you for today and thank you for each one. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and give you a good week.